This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. On Monday, Orlando police arrested a man on a homicide charge after he allegedly shot a man to death outside the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services office. Police say the shooting, which sparked chaos at the office as people who'd been taking their citizenship tests had to die for cover, was domestic in nature. Harbour House of Central Florida says serious cases of domestic violence are on the rise, but they're also seeing more people come forward for help as the pandemic lifts. For more, I spoke with Harbour House's Laura Lucy about the non-profit's work to help survivors of domestic abuse and violence. Well, Laura Lucy, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us. So there have been a couple of fairly high-profile incidents um, in recent weeks, most notably this week, uh, a tragic case of a homicide that the police are saying is domestic in nature. A, a man was shot and killed outside of the USCIS office in Orlando, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you're seeing at Harbour House and and maybe some of the trends we're seeing in terms of the prevalence of domestic violence in our community over the last 12 months or so. Right. When we first were on the, the lockdown, we were hearing from fewer victims. We were getting fewer survivor calls because people were at home 24-7 with their abuser. So they didn't have those opportunities of the abuser went to work, so now I can call Harbor House or I can call a friend. People also were not seeing anyone else in the community. So, um, you know, friends and family and their hairstylist and the friendly cashier at the grocery store that they might talk to or might reach out to in some way. So there was a lot of time spent at home with the abuser. Um, As we started to emerge from the lockdown, We've started to get more calls on our hotline. We've started to get more people who are not as fearful of coming into shelter because with COVID, people were afraid of coming into a new environment. So we have seen increases in people reaching out to us. But in terms of the violence, we have definitely seen an increase in lethality. So what that means is the cases where it could potentially lead to death, to a murder. Um, so we're seeing more people coming in who have been stabbed, who have survived strangulation, things like that. Is it fair to say there's a connection too between the pandemic, like the stress of it and and increased incidences of domestic violence? Or is that a stretch to kind of make that connection? No, things like like COVID, the pandemic, the lockdowns, they don't turn someone into an abuser. But if someone is an abuser, it can definitely exacerbate the situation, all of those stresses. Um, So the main thing with domestic violence, it's all about power and control. So while they were locked down together and together 24-7, abusers had a lot of power and control over their victims. And as we're emerging, more people are being vaccinated, more places are opening back up, and people are getting out of the house the abusers are seeing some of that control that they had slip away. So while they could be a little more creative with their abuse behind closed doors when no one was able to see their victims, people are getting out more and they don't like that they don't have that control. So that's when we see the the level of violence really ratcheting up right now. Mm -hmm. And was it something you were expecting like when, when uh, things shut down last year and, and uh, a lot of people were out of work, were you kind of thinking this is what we probably need to be planning for 12 months down the line or even sooner than that? Yes, we unfortunately did expect to see this. What about the kind of awareness in the community? Like, Do you, do you feel like people who aren't in these situations 
and they're obviously focused on a lot of other things because you know the pandemic itself is create you know it's taking up a lot of people's attention right now does that mean that people may be less aware of of uh situations where domestic violence may be happening and maybe less likely to notify notify police or or other people if, if they see somebody in need well i think during the shutdowns we were all so isolated that people just didn't see and didn't notice we were all concerned about ourselves and our own health and safety uh, but it's important to remember to check in on your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. Can you give me a sense of the kind of need you have for the services you offer at, at your shelter, for example? Like, are you needing to find other places for, for people to find refuge? Like, what, what's the kind of logistics of it right now as far as Harbour House is concerned? At the height of COVID, we did reduce the capacity in our shelter. We stayed open the whole time, though. We we're here offering services. So the shelter was open and fully operational, though with reduced capacity, we never turned anyone away. If we were at that COVID capacity, then we did uh, put survivors up at hotels until a space in the shelter became available. We also have outreach offices throughout Orange County and those remained open. There was a time when most of those meetings were online via Zoom or just by phone. But our advocates were there the entire time and we're still here today. We're slowly increasing the capacity at our shelter to get back up to full capacity as we have, you know, again, more people are vaccinated and we're able to, to bring more people in. But we do not turn anyone away, even if the shelter's full. We will find a safe place for you to stay. Mm-hmm. Where does law enforcement fit into this? Like, for example, during the pandemic, were you maybe relying a little more on them to be the eyes and ears, whereas other people in the community may have been filling some of that role pre-lockdown, that is, you know, pre-pandemic? Yes, we do rely on law enforcement. They send a lot of referrals our way. We also have a program where we have advocates actually located with law enforcement at their offices. And any cases that come in that are those high lethality cases, um, it's a program called Early Victim Engagement. So they let our Harbor House advocates know hey, how about you reach out to this person because it looks like the situation could really escalate. And so our advocates will reach out to those survivors and see if we can get them help with our services. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask too about Pause for Peace. I know this happened last month, uh, but that's that's an annual fundraising walk that happens and it sort of ties in pets uh, with awareness of domestic violence. Uh, Are you able to talk a little bit about the kinds of kind of connections there are and maybe how how that that whole situation plays out because my understanding is that a lot of times people who are in domestic violence situations or experiencing domestic violence they're part of what makes them afraid to leave or, or reluctant to to leave is the fear that you know the, that uh, their, their pets may be harmed or, or killed as well. Yes we do have the pause for peace kennel that's on site our, at our emergency shelter campus And so we don't want that to be a barrier to anyone if they're considering leaving an abusive relationship, because a lot of times there is abuse of the pets when there is abuse of the humans um, in a house. So we don't want anybody left behind with the abuser. So they can bring in dogs, cats. We've had rabbits and fish and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. I know that that uh, there's a little bit of pressure on animal shelters right now because you know it's kind of a post-pandemic thing. So are you are you finding that is that sort of shelter you still have space there for for folks who may need to come in and and bring their their uh, pets with them? 
Yes, we do. We have plenty of space in the kennel. We have seen an increase over the last year. We had over a 100% increase in people coming in with their pets. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's a good thing that the word is getting out that we do offer that service. And so people can come in with their pets. They don't have to leave them behind. You're just joining me, my guest is Laura Lucy. She's with Harbor House of Central Florida. Um, Laura, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that people should be looking out for. Like, What are some of the warning signs? Um, I mean, just kind of thinking about the, as you say, the increase in lethality, obviously the goal is to, to try and head that off at the pass. So what should people be looking out for and what kind of help can, can people offer if you know, they're, they're, they know somebody who may be in a situation like this? Right. If you have a friend, family member, coworker that you suspect is in an abusive relationship, the main thing is to just let them know that you're not judging them. It's easy to say just leave, but it's not easy to just leave. They often have uh, legal and financial entanglements with their abuser, like a mortgage, like children, um, like pets in some cases. So it's it's a lot harder to leave than you think. So just try to be gentle with that person. Let them know about Harbor House's services. As far as the warning signs, uh, usually the abuser starts out as a very charming person and their victim gets sucked into the relationship very quickly. If you've noticed behavioral changes in your friend, they used to go out a lot and now they're always making excuses and sometimes their excuses don't seem to make much sense to you. If they're also making excuses for their partner's behavior, um, and obviously physical signs like bruises and things like that you want to look out for, but it's usually more subtle than that. Mm -hmm. We're also, Orlando is a very multicultural community. Um, can language be sometimes a, a barrier for people seeking help? Yes, we do everything we can to accommodate all of the, the languages, all the beautiful culture of Orlando. So we have a very diverse staff. And on staff, we have advocates who speak English, Spanish, and Creole. And then we use a language line or bring in translators if someone speaks a language other than those. Mm -hmm. As far as what you think the outlook is, as you say, we're kind of coming out of the, the worst of the pandemic, at least. Things are starting to return to some semblance of normal. What do you think that means for the work of Harbour House going forward for the next uh, six months, say? We're expecting to be busy over the next six months. As more people are getting out, businesses are back open, people are returning to their offices, children are returning to school. Um, we're going to see more survivors are, are feeling more comfortable in reaching out for help and then getting out of the house. And they're also going to have more space to reach out for help. So if they're not on lockdown with their abuser, all day, every day, they'll have more opportunities to reach out for help. And so we plan to be there for them. And I, I wonder if just kind of casting back to the last year or so, um, thinking about some of the, the things that companies and, and nonprofits had to do to adapt. I mean, one thing we've all become very accustomed to is meeting and talking on Zoom, right, as we're doing right now. Um, have you been able to sort of build some of that technology into the work you do either kind of finding people to help or or just the sort of outreach that Harbour House offers? Like, has some of that kind of naturally gone online? I'm wondering if some of that assistance will remain remote from, from here on out. Yes, we have moved some support groups online. Some support groups are meeting via Zoom for survivors. We also started a friends and family support group. So those people who have a loved one who 
you may be beyond that relationship or may still be in the abusive relationship. We have support for friends and family as well. So those have all remained online. We also assisted clients who had uh, hearings online. That was another thing that Orange County did. So not all of the you know, injunction for protection hearings were in person. So that was another way that we supported survivors. And I think those are probably going back to in person, but um, if not, then we'll continue to support them. We also have childcare on our emergency shelter campus. So we've always had before and after school care and a preschool there but we added support for K-12 uh, distance learners. Because a lot of the people living in our shelter had children who were in you know, elementary, middle, and high school that were not going in person. So we've had our youth advocates supporting them as well with distance learning. Mm-hmm. Well, Laura, Lucy is the Grants and Marketing Manager at Harbor House of Central Florida. Laura, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. We appreciate it. Up next, Opera del Sol debuts a new work at the Orlando Fringe Festival, mixing the music of Mozart with tracks by Radiohead and others. We'll talk about the work with Opera del Sol's creative director, Nicole Dupre, after the break. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Orlando Fringe Festival returns this year after a pandemic hiatus. One of the works on stage is a new rock opera, Requiem. It combines the music of Mozart with tracks by Radiohead, Evanescence and others. The work aims to begin a dialogue around the opioid epidemic with overdoses spiking through the pandemic. For more about the piece and what inspired it, I spoke with Opera del Sol's founder and creative director, Nicole Dupre. Well, Nicole, thanks so much for joining me. It's good to speak to you again. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So the new uh, presentation from Opera del Sol is Requiem. I wonder if you just talk a little bit about what it is and what makes this work unique. Yeah, so um, we are Opera del Sol, and we are on a mission to really change people's perceptions of what opera and classical music is. We really want to use this art form to really impact the community in new um, and innovative ways. So our next original production, and our first since the pandemic, and so we're so excited, is called Requiem, and that is going to be premiering next week at the Orlando Fringe Festival on the 20th, and we'll have seven different performances. And the subject matter of what Requiem is, is, is it really follows a woman's path through trauma and opioid addiction. Because since the pandemic has happened, the opioid crisis has, you know, almost doubled with their um, overdoses as well as their deaths. And so we just really wanted to use opera and classical music as a way to really create a conversation within the community so that we could talk about addiction, so that we could talk about the opioid crisis and really, you know, realize that it can affect all of us in one way or another. And it works in contemporary or fairly recent um, pieces of music from the likes of Radiohead, uh, Evanescence, etc. Uh, tell me a little bit about you know the the score, the the uh, the soundtrack to it. Right. So our musical director, uh, Nisha Johnson, has expertly woven these traditional pop songs, like you said, um, from Linkin Park and Evanescence, and really then infused Mozart's Requiem, which is this very dark and somber yet powerful piece. And so we've chosen these songs that really help us create this musical storyline that follows our main character's path through starting and and being prescribed opioids all the way through her tragic ending. And um, we really chose those particular songs because one, they're recognizable and also very, very impactful. Mm -hmm. Do you have any favorites out of the soundtrack? Anything that kind of 
speaks to you specifically? I would say we have we have a few really incredible renditions. You know, we had this awesome um, mashup with Iris from the Goo Goo Dolls, um, as well as, you know, our character that plays Addiction does this really incredible um, Wicked Games cover, you know, to this really great guitar solo. And, and the way that we take these and really what you see on the stage unfolding is really going to make you take these songs and appreciate the lyrics in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Now, Mozart is part of this as well. How does that fit into this? So, yes, that's kind of the underlining theme of the whole thing is is really the um, underlining musical note and themes that we have all throughout there. And and Requiem is really a piece that, you know, usually is a um, funeral procession or something that really is surrounds death. And again, it's this very it's, you know, classical music can be, you know, joyful or somber, but yet still so powerful. And so she is taking different parts from from the chorus to just the actual instrumentals and has blended it throughout many of the songs that continue this theme throughout the entire show. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the um, some of the other things you're doing around the show because you're, you're it's not just a performance kind of speaking to opioid addiction from an artistic point of view. There's also some practical things that are happening, right? So just talk a little bit, if you could, Nicole, about what you're doing in terms of partnering up with the sheriff's office and, and how that's going to work with this presentation. Right. You know, when we started to really start that conversation within the community, as we started to, you know, build partnerships and start to, you know, get people to really understand this project that we were doing, we were really introduced to a lot of the things that are happening in Seminole County. You know, Sheriff Lima, the sheriff of Seminole County, has really led the charge with the um, the way that he is approaching this crisis. I like a, a quote that he always says is, it's not about making bad people good. It's about making sick people well. And so that really kind of um, was something that I really grabbed a hold of because I think that as a community, we can really learn from that. I think that it's it's time that we start a conversation about, about what this is. You know, we are seeing overdoses, you know, practically tenfold. We had about 97,000 deaths in America last year due to opioid addiction. And, you know, sometimes this comes with despair and the pandemic has really, you know, led a lot of people to depression or not being able to have their health insurance. And so they are turning to either um, prescriptions from other people. They are turning to street drugs, heroin, which is now being laced with fentanyl. Um, believe it or not, is sometimes is it's much easier to get these street drugs than it is to get in to see a certified doctor. And so what they're doing in Seminole County, instead of just demonizing and, and arresting someone and, and then getting them arrested and then releasing them back into the system, System, he really believes in rehabilitation. And so in Seminole County, they have built um, what they call the OPOD facility, where when people have been arrested for um, an opioid-related crime, they have this opportunity where they can actually go and get the help that they need. And so that was something that really drew our organization when we were building this project to you know the sheriff's office. And so um, we have been doing some public speaking engagements with them. We've been talking to the people that are running the OPOD pod centers and we hope to you 
know, figure out a way that we can use music to help with their healing process, not just for those that are within the facilities, but also their family. Because so many people, not just those that are being arrested and those that are addicted, it's also about the families and the loved ones that, that are surrounding the people that, that are suffering from these addictions. And so one of the things too, that we're also doing at every single one of our shows, we have seven shows of Requiem at the Orlando Fringe Festival, and we will have a mental health and addiction um, service provider at every single one of our shows. So we hope that if for some reason you are either triggered by some of the traumas that are, are very real, you know, when you see this character, you're gonna either see parts of yourself or maybe somebody that you know. And so we want to make sure that after every single show that you will be able to to be, to be able to see someone and get resources from Aspire Health. I think that, you know, mental health, addiction, um, and, and those kinds of things really need to be addressed. And I think people need to know that there are resources out there and there is help out there. And um, we will also have five select dates where we will be in the community tent, which is will be outside um, in Lock Haven Park, where we will actually have Project Opioid as a certified um, distributor of Narcan. Narcan is a life-saving nasal spray that can stop an overdose for 90 minutes minutes, enough to get someone to the hospital and to get the help that they need. And so we just want people to realize, again, you know, this is something that is happening to so many people in our community. And we just want people to be prepared and to also be able to get the resources in case it happens. And then also to see a show so that you can feel something and that you can hopefully have those conversations. What's the early buzz on this? Nicole, are you expecting to see people come to the show because they have some kind of connection with with uh, opioid addiction like they may have a family member who's who's experienced it or uh, are people just are you expecting that people just kind of come because they're curious and they're they're interested in opera like what's the sort of venn diagram of um of uh, of the audience members you're, you're looking for here Really what we're hoping is that there will be so many people within the community that will see this as an actual community advocacy piece. I hope that by providing these other sources or resources and, you know, having these different themes that we can get a multitude of people, you know, maybe people who have not been to the Fringe Festival and they do care about this crisis and they do care about this community connection and they will come. And and maybe if there are people out there and being like, well, you know what, music was something that helped heal my heart or or maybe they are fans of of the pop music that we've used, or maybe they're just actual opera lovers, and they want to see how an organization like ours is using this cla- classic um, art form to really make an impact within our community. So I'm hoping to see a variety of different people, and I really want everybody, anybody who loves music, anybody who loves their community, I would love for you to come and see how we have actually used music, how we've used our resources to create this beautiful piece that we hope will move you and that will educate you and then that will also provide um, some help and, and solace to know that you or maybe a loved one is not alone when it comes to addiction. I wonder too if I could ask you a little bit Nicole about your connection to the crisis um, uh, you know when you were reaching out to me about this interview you, you talked a little bit about um, uh, your, your ex-husband who I understand died of an overdose in 2017 is, is that something that you're you're speaking out about in the hopes of of kind of just illustrating, you know, just how widespread this problem is. 
Most certainly. Um, you know, when, when we started to battle his addiction almost 10 years ago, there was not a lot of resources. And the stigma and the shame of what an addict was, was, you know, you thought that they were just somebody that was on the street, somebody that was a junkie. And, you know, that wasn't us. But it was never a more lonely time in my life because I didn't know where to go. I'm a daughter of two Marines. You know, I, I do a lot within the community. And he was worried that if you, his employer at the time knew that he was battling, you know, drug addiction, you know, and his addiction was the opioids, that he maybe would lose his job. And I just, we, we, you know, tried to get him clean at home quietly ourselves three different times. And um, finally, he suffered an overdose dose while we were together on New Year's Eve of 2011. And that was honestly the worst moment of my life. You know, I, I truly thought that he was going to die in my arms just for him to be able to get to the hospital in time. And he came home and then he pulled out the drugs and then did them right in front of me. And I knew that at that moment, though he didn't die that night, that I had truly lost my husband. And we tried for, for years after that. And unfortunately, on July 10th of 2017, um, my ex-husband Adam suffered a drug overdose and um, passed away. And so I have to say, you know, I lived with a lot of guilt, especially in 2017, 2018. What more could I have done? You know, could I, should I have stayed? What where could I have gone? Maybe I should have spoken up. And so what for me that really started to really heal me and to start giving me the ability to even talk about this was music. You know, he passed away on July 10th of 2017. Opera del Sol's launch party was on August 10th of 2017. So in some ways, everything about this organization and about this incredible team that we have has really led me to, to being able to say, hey, this is something that, you know, though I may not be the world's greatest opera singer, I love music and I know there are other people out there that could use this and, you know, just to heal their hearts. And so our incredible music team, you know, Nisha Johnson and I started to say, hey, let's create something that really tackles this conversation, this crisis. And then we brought on other members, you know, this incredible choreographer, Sean Lowe, and then ultimately our writer, um, Michael Knight. And together we have created what we really think, you know, you're going to see this character on stage and you're going to know this girl and, it, and you're going to see parts of them. And, and there's a lot of this show that comes from things that I have gone through, but then also every member of our creative team. And so I think that, you know, at the end of the day, we really, really, truly believe that music can help heal and we can and it can really help to create, um, you know, conversation. And that's really what we hope to do, because, you know, I don't want anybody to feel like I felt and feel that they're alone, to, to, to think that there aren't resources and there aren't ways to feel better and, and to overcome. And so this is really this whole um, process of creating this original work of art has been so, so meaningful. And we are just really excited for the entire community to just really experience this. And this will be the debut of this piece? Yes, we were we were all set to premiere it last year, but you know, pandemic. Um, and then all you know, to be honest, you know, I was already passionate about this opioid crisis, but then with the pandemic, we are seeing a nearly double rate of addiction and suicide and overdose deaths. And I just think that this it couldn't be a more perfect time to really have this conversation and to really deliver this piece of art to the community. Mm -hmm. Are you looking forward to getting back on stage, you know, or, or 
to the, the opportunity for, for this work to be heard live and in person too, because obviously Fringe last year had to sort of fold up its tent because of the pandemic. So it's it's back again. Yes, I, I just couldn't be more excited to just know. I think that this is one of the first big festivals that Central Florida is having since we have actually opened up to the public. And I think that this couldn't be a more perfect time for everybody to get out there and just experience something, you know, live music, live dancing, and then also just to have a, a communal moment together, right? I think that's some of the things about that we actually miss is, is laughing with another person, applauding with another person. So I'm really excited for the audience to enjoy one another and to experience, you know, just a whole um, community emotion together. Well, uh, Nicole Dupre is the creative director of Opera del Sol and Central Florida Vocal Arts. We've been speaking about the upcoming performance of the Fringe Show Requiem. It's the debut of this rock opera. Um, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so very much. You have a wonderful day. Up next, finding clues about the ancient beasts that once roamed Florida. We'll talk with two river divers who dredged up a mammoth bone from the Peace River. That's when Intersection returns. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. A pair of amateur fossil hunters caused a stir a few weeks ago when they found an ancient mammoth bone in the Peace River. And that's not all they found buried in the mud. Near the mammoth bone was part of a saber-toothed tiger fang. I talked with the two, Derek Demeter and Henry Sadler, about diving for clues to Florida's ancient past and the spirit of exploration. Joining me are Henry Sadler. He is a middle school teacher. He's also an amateur paleontologist. Uh, Henry, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Happy to be here. And we're also joined by Derek Demeter. He's the planetarium director at Seminole State College and also a fossil hunter. Derek, thanks as well. Glad to be here. Derek, I'm going to start with you. The picture you posted on instagram and your other social media feeds of you clutching this enormous bone uh really kind of caught fire right so just tell me a little bit about what it is and and where you found it yeah so it belongs to a columbian mammoth which is actually the largest elephant that's ever existed this thing is massive twenty-two thousand pounds uh you know can be as tall as 13 to 14 feet tall uh, and what we found, we believe, based on other paleontologists' confirmations, that it's a humerus uh, bone. But we can't say that 100% sure until we get it fully identified. Um, but uh, we, we really think that's what that is. Um, and uh, it was found on the Peace River, uh, down kind of near Arcadia, uh, which is kind of, kind of east, uh, maybe our east of the Fort Myers Cape Coral area, if the people are aware of that, that kind of location. Mm-hmm. Did you know there was something like this down there, or was it just a kind of a fishing expedition, essentially? Well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about kind of the reason why we did this. Um, so Henry, originally, I was actually going to do a talk at Henry's school on space for his students. And the day before, we decided we wanted to go scuba diving offshore in Venice. That's the shark tooth capital world where you can find the big megalodon teeth. Unfortunately, the weather was pretty awful the day before and it really messed up the visibility and there's still a lot of wave choppiness in the ocean so the captain of the charter we were going to go on canceled so henry and i were like let's go to the peace river 
And uh, so we went, you know, we, we used, we went on, uh, went out there. We, we went to several spots. We were finding a lot of different stuff. Henry can actually talk to you one of the, about one of the really cool other things we discovered that day, including some, you know, shark teeth and other types of uh, fossils. Uh, but then at the very end of the day is when we essentially made that discovery of the mammoth bones. So I'll let Henry talk a bit more about, because he was the one who put his hand on the, the, he was the first contact with this, this bone here. Okay. So Henry, describe the moment you, you, uh, you made contact with this thing on the bottom of the river. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so it's, it's funny because this spot is one that a friend and I have been working this spot, you know, we've been working this site for quite a number of years now, and we found a few other other bones before. And luckily, this was not my first one because my first mammoth leg bone. Remember, we're working in pitch black conditions, so you can only see maybe a few inches in front of you. And a couple of years ago, when I found the first leg bone, I didn't know what it was. I thought it was a log, but I thought it was a funky log. So I took a a rock that I found next to it, and I I smacked it on the end of the log and broke a piece off. And that's when I saw the internal structure and the porousness of the bone. And of course, kicked myself later for that. But um, luckily, this one was not my first. And as I crawled up and over this fallen and rotting, semi-rotting palm tree, I was crawling up and over. And they always kind of make me a little nervous because snakes and other things like to live in the crevices of palm trees that have been falling in the water. But anyway, I was crawling up and over that. And the next thing I, I touched was a hard, solid bone and I, and I instantly knew what it was just because of my my prior experience and maybe about a foot a foot and a half of it was exposed and and as soon as i touched it because it was so high up in the sediment it was, it was very silty and as soon as i touched it my visibility which was about six inches uh, turned to turned to zero and i was just trying to feel it out and trying to figure out where it was and not lose it in all that darkness and that's actually when i popped up what are the chances are the rest of this mammoth is somewhere fairly close to where you discovered pretty, pretty high mm-hmm. pretty high pretty high so we've been working it again as i said for the last three years and the first year we found almost 500 pounds of of or probably even more of mammoth material we found another leg bone we found vertebra and tusk segments and skull fragments and then jaw and teeth and things like that and we actually donated that to the museum of natural history up in florida the florida museum of natural history um so it's it's, it's a pretty good pretty good spot and when we we do think that these bones are associated. I haven't found uh, more than two of any one bone type, which you know a mammoth would have two humeruses and two femurs and things like that. And so we we believe that it's associated. We believe that this area is where a mammoth died, and its remains have kind of been scattered across a 40, 50 foot long section of river. And and every year as that river courses by, it kind of erodes further and further into the bank and reveals a little bit more. Derek, I want to go back to you for a moment. Um, before we got started, I was asking Henry about the age of this thing. And uh, I mean, it's pretty old, but it's not as old as some of the things that you all found on the Peace River. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the age of this this bone, Derek, and where it fits in the panoply of things you've found on that river. Yeah, so what's really neat about the Peace River is you have this kind of like uh, what's called deposition layers kind of like a cake where you have different layers of time and the actual river bottom is contains fossils that are predominantly marine and that was during the time we call the miocene and early pliocene when essentially the uh state of florida then that location was covered by a shallow sea so things like megalodon and other shark teeth other sharks like tiger sharks and bull sharks and 
stingrays and all kinds of marine animals were located there. The layer above that is this what we call Pleistocene layer, and that's where the mammoth is located. And that ranges between two and a half million to about 10,000 years old. Now, usually when a, an animal dies, it gets buried and the bone is replaced generally by other minerals that are located around the, the, the area that it, it died. Um, and the more, the older a fossil is, the more he heavier mineralized it is. So usually in other areas, we found bones that are very brittle because that probably tells us they were usually higher, so they were probably younger, so they had less time to really mineralize. Um, this bone was a lot more mineralized, a lot more solid. It had some cracks, but it definitely held together. Usually, as things dry out, they get more brittle. This one stayed pretty nice and solid. So we can say that it's probably more in hundreds of thousands of years opposed to the 10,000 years. But we can't say that for sure because we'll have to actually have it analyzed with a radioisometric dating, uh, other types of, of, of scientific uh, research needs to be done to actually pinpoint the exact age. Um, but, you know, it's definitely, definitely old. Uh, we can say that for sure. And, uh, you know, it's not the oldest thing that we find in the river, but it is, you know, an extinct animal that once roamed Florida. So how heavy is it? Because um, I can't tell from the photograph that people have seen, like, whether you're just kind of hamming it up a little bit for the camera or if that thing actually weighs quite a bit. Well, I definitely was hamming it up because that's just how I am. I like to be funny, um, but it is still pretty heavy. Um, and I kind of, we're kind of guessing about 50 pounds because of the fact that a lot of my astronomy equipment that I carry to outreaches and programs around, you know, the area, it weighed about that. So I was like, well, it's roughly about 50 to 60 pounds. Um, and that's kind of where we're at now. The thing though is, is that a lot of that's water weight. So what's going to happen is as the water evaporates out of the bone, it's going to get lighter and lighter and lighter. Um, and Henry was actually saying that um, the bone has already gotten uh, lighter than this. So Henry, can you, do you have an idea of? Sure. Yeah. Going? Because I, I actually tried to weigh it today um, at school. So I stepped on a scale and then held it and everything like that. And it's, it's significantly lighter in the last 10 days. So not, not only in terms of weight, but in terms of color as well. It was jet black when we first found it with maybe a couple of browner areas. But um, it's already the entire top half is this light, chocolatey brown. And it's actually become a lot more uh, uh, sticky. They say, if you're not sure if it's a fossil or not, to, to lick it. And if it's a fossil, your, your tongue will stick. Well, it's, it's actually a technique that, that they, uh, they teach you um, when you're learning about this kind of stuff. But if your tongue sticks to it, it's more likely to be a fossil than not because of how porous it is. And it's already, when we first found it, it wasn't sticky at all. It was soaking wet. It was dripping everywhere. And um, already in the last 10 days, it's lightened up. The entire top brown color, sorry, the entire top part is, is brown now. And again, it's that, that porousness and that stickiness feeling. But um, we weighed it today and it's about 45-ish pounds right now. I kind of feel like you probably wouldn't want to be looking something like that, that you just dredged out of the river. It doesn't look particularly appetizing. <laughs> well, we, uh, we end up taking a lot of that water in our mouths anyway, <laughs> through the regulators <laughs> and things like that. But uh, I actually didn't lick this one. It, it, it's sticky enough that just touching it with your hand. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's, there's a chance that, you know, if you, if you keep sort of doing these exploratory dives and you find enough of this mammal and you think it's the same one, will you ever be able to figure out what it died from or how it was killed? So there's another river that I've, I've actually dove um, up actually closer to here um, in central Florida. 
And uh, a friend of mine uh, excavated a pretty decent amount of uh, mammoth bone as well. And uh, I was able to excavate a, a part of the mammoth skull and it's in a marl clay. And we think that it probably got stuck in like quicksand and wasn't able to get out. So majority of that fossil of that, of that mammoth was actually there. Uh, the jaws, the legs, everything. Um, so in this case, um, I, I, I like what Henry said. You know, if we were able to collect enough, sure, we, unless we see any type of uh, injuries on the bone, maybe it broke its bone or or whatever it is. It's really not. It's really hard to to say. Unfortunately, um, one of the things that was recently discovered, I think like 15 years ago, it was recently. Uh, was actually a Macedon uh, uh, fossil site over in Daytona. Uh, the Museum of Arts and Sciences has it on their display, and they actually found that because they were building a car dealership. And so again, as Henry was mentioning, is that they were able to figure out the depth of this uh, this mammoth because they were able to see it, and it actually died of, uh, of, of most likely old age because it was a very large Macedon, so most likely just died of natural causes. I, I was just going to say that because we found the skull in so many fragments, um, you, you lose a lot of information there, especially with the wear patterns on the teeth and the wear patterns on the jaw, because those can be used to uh, estimate an age of a mammoth. How, so mammoths, their teeth are, are almost plates stuck together. And at, over time, those plates fall off and wear down and the whole tooth, the enamel gets worn as well. And so those are really, really awesome clues for both mammoth and mastodon. Uh, aging, but again, we we lose a lot of the information just due to the nature of how of how they're found, how these ones are found. So, do they have predators in Florida? Oh yes. So Derek was talking earlier about some of the amazing finds that we found earlier in the day, and, and I thought that my day couldn't get any better before the mammoth leg bone because I found one of the rarest bones that you can find fossils you can find in Florida, and that's the uh, the saber tooth tiger. I was going to say that, but I was like, this is kind of betraying my ignorance of fossils because I'm thinking of the old, you know, pictures from books I had when I was a kid of a saber tooth tiger mauling a mammoth. And and I we found a saber tooth tiger canine. I it's an insane find, and if you think about the ratio of predator to prey, just just look at all the zebra and antelope and things like that that you have. In, in Africa, for example, compared to the amount of lion prides that you have, you always have a lot more prey. And so finding any sort of carnivore is like the holy grail. So uh, as amazing as this mammoth was, and it is amazing, especially how well-preserved it is, for me, actually, the, uh, the, the highlight of the day, if you will, was the the saber tooth tiger canine that I found. And those things could those things could be almost 10 inches long. They could be huge. And I found about three inches of it. And it's absolutely spectacular. And it's, it's one of the serrated ones. So not all of the uh, saber tooth saber tooth teeth were serrated, but this one is it's, it's an amazing find. So you, you have things like that. You have predators like the saber tooth tiger. You have predators like uh, bears and there was just dire, dire wolves. If you've seen Game of Thrones, they had dire wolves mm -hmm. running around in Florida. Oh, that, that's a real animal? Yes, a dire yeah, wolf yeah. was a real animal, a six-foot-tall wolf <laughs> roaming yeah. around. And uh, one of the rivers up in North Florida, I was scuba diving, and they found a part of the jaw of a dire wolf with several teeth in it. Uh, and these teeth are massive, you know, so you can imagine that's just one section of the lower jaw, the maxilla, as we call it. Imagine a you know, super wolf, if you will, that... Uh, that lived here in Florida. So it could have been it could have been one of those that attacked this mammoth and died. It also, if it had been more recent, 
could have uh, died at the hands of people, right? We have evidence of carved mammoth bones that have been found in Florida, carved mammoth tusk. Um, a friend of mine found a, a uh, skull of a bison, which used to live down here as well, Paleolithic. So we're talking 12,000-ish years ago that had a, an arrowhead, a projectile point embedded in the skull. So they were living around the same time as, as early humans were um, in these areas as well. So that's kind of a fascinating idea. You know, maybe these guys were, were here, maybe near an old spring, had a camp and they were butchering and, and, and hunting and things like that. So who knows? The imagination runs wild when you look through time like this. Did you know that this was a saber-toothed tiger canine when you touched it? Like, did, did you instantly know, kind of like with the mammoth bone? Yes. Like, this is the holy grail, so to speak, of uh, river diving. Yes and no. I, I, I came up to Derek. So when I first found that tooth, I, I was like, no way. This is just like a broken shark tooth or something. I, I've been looking at books, many, many books and, and descriptions, identification books, trying to figure out what's around. And so I've never seen one in person. So when I first found it, I got so excited. I put it in my glove, wrapped up my glove, and I was holding it to my chest. I was continuing trying to see if I could focus to find any more of it. I did that for about five minutes before I I freaked out too much that I was going to lose it. And so I came up to the boat, and I was showing Derek. And I was like, Derek, I think this is cat. My voice was shaking. My hands were shaking because this is an incredibly rare fossil. I was like, I I think this is cat. And so I showed it uh, a couple of pictures to a friend of mine, and uh, he possibly identified it as Sabretooth. Derek, you are a fan of old stuff, right? I mean, thinking about the the stuff you kind of turn your eyes to when you're looking at stars, incredibly old. This is a little more down to earth, a little more kind of easy to grasp. But what is it that kind of uh, draws you to these things, whether it's astronomy or or fossil hunting? Ever since I was a kid, I had a huge imagination. I I just I have a very visual imagination where I could just you know, just see myself in time and in space. And one thing that's really cool about this is when I was young, I got, I went, you know, I grew up in Daytona beach. So I went to the museum of art and science there and I've seen the giant sloth and I've seen the fossils there and I went to the planetarium there. So it, so I think there's always this fascination about prehistoric ancient time, um, whether it be looking, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, billions of years, I just, I always just find it amazing. And what's really neat about fossil hunting, um, unlike astronomy, is you can touch. You can you lick it if you wanted to. Uh, you can, uh, you can. Yeah. You can't do that with a star. No, you can't. And um, you know, you you really just it makes you go, wow. This where we we existed on, or we live on the same planet that has changed for so much over the formation of this planet four and a half billion years ago. So we're talking, you know, uh, even though this is fairly young in terms of the rest of the stuff and, in, in, in you know, that other people find and even geology, it still makes you go, wow, if I have, I'm holding this mammoth, you know, bone, what, you know, imagine this mammoth walking around grazing on grasses with possibly, you know, you know, tens or 12 or 20 uh, of these mammoths around with babies and, and, and adults. And it's just, it really just opens up this thing. And the same thing when I look at the stars and I just imagine myself on another world or looking at another galaxy, it just, it, it, for, it, it's, 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 well, hey, scuba diving in this river is kind of like being an astronaut in a way, because you're going into this new world and, and it, it's dark and it's kind of mysterious. And so, you know, this is to me like one of the, 
closest things I have, you know, to, to do it, to explore, uh, likes, like an astronaut. So for me, it's just that, that feeling of going, going somewhere, seeing something that no one else has seen or touched something that no one else has touched. Um, it's just, it's, it's exhilarating. And, um, you know, whether, again, whether it be a fossil or holding a piece of rock that is 3 billion years old and it tells a story of our planet, um, it, it just, it really invokes the imagination. And, I, and that, that's what excites me about it. We're taping this during Teacher Appreciation Week and you mentioned your classroom before. Do you think you're inspiring like a, a new generation of fossil hunters or paleontologists or other kind of scientists with the, the kind of your hobby as well? Well, well, if I'm not, I'm doing my job wrong. Let's, <laughs> let's just keep it at that. I, I hope I hope so. You know, I, I really do. That's, that's always the goal of a teacher to inspire and, and not necessarily just fossil hunting. You know, this is kind of a, a niche, niche hobby, but we were talking earlier, Derek and I, about how we want to inspire people just to just to explore the world around them, whether that be fossils or rocks or taking photographs of, of distant stars or birds or whatever gets you hyped up and psyched and interested around, about the world around you. That, that's what I want to inspire. I want to inspire exploration, going outside and, and just try to see how things work and, and piece things together and and just take a look around, really. The other thing, too, is, you know, with my fossil hunting, you know, skills or interests, you know, that makes me appreciate what's happening now with Perseverance, the, you know, Mm. robot on Mars that's going to be fossil hunting for ancient life on Mars who may or may not find evidence of some byproduct of life or remnants of life. So, being somebody who explores the world and fossil hunting can better help me appreciate and also inspire future, uh, you know, humans to become astronauts that may be traveling to Mars who may need those skills to do geology, to do paleontology, to do all these things too. So, you know, you never know, maybe in the future, you know, when I talk about these fossils, I find that might inspire a kid that, might go, well, I'm going to go to another world and I'm going to find, you know, traces of ancient life on, on another place like Mars or even Titan, one of the moons of Saturn. So, you know, can I, you know, connecting all of this together, uh, it, it's all, it's all one, right. You know, mm-hmm. one, one field connects to the other and so on. And, 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 you know, if I could inspire those kids, um, then, then that makes, that's, that's the thrill of my life is, uh, to be able to inspire and to get people out there. Well, we've been speaking about the discovery of uh, an ancient mammoth bone fossil in the Peace River with Derek Demeter. Derek, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And also along on that find, the person who actually grabbed hold of that uh, fossilized mammoth bone first was uh, Henry Sadler. Henry, thanks as well. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having us. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find ancient episodes of this show buried on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening. 